0: The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. So
1: I'd like to welcome everyone to Common Ground's Sunday night practice group. And my name is Gail Iverson, and I'm filling in for Mark tonight. He's uh, leading a retreat, a Labor Day retreat, with uh, quite a number of the Common Ground community, and he will be back. Uh, tomorrow. So tonight I want to talk, start out by talking about right effort, and especially in relationship to developing the positive mind states, the wholesome mind states. So right effort is the sixth factor on the Noble Eightfold Path. And when the Buddha taught about practicing right effort, he um, said that there were four things that we uh, could do in order to develop this right effort. He said that we could um, prevent unarisen, unwholesome states from arising. We could um, abandon unwholesome states that have arisen. We could arouse wholesome states that had not yet arisen. And we could maintain wholesome states that had arisen. So when we look at the, the first suggestion that was made to... Um, prevent the arising of unwholesome unarisen unwholesome states. Um, what the instruction there was to develop strong mindfulness and when we develop that strength of mindfulness then we can pay attention to um, we, we can notice, when there is um, sense contact, and so if we stay with that, then the perception and the thinking doesn't arise, and therefore the unwholesome states don't arise. This is advanced meditation practice. So most of the time, for um, most of us, we would, uh, we had unwholesome um, states have uh, arisen, and so we're practicing to abandon those unwholesome mind states. So, um, it's, again, there were um, several instructions on how we could um, work with, with these unwholesome mind states to abandon them. Um, one of the things that was suggested was that we could um, replace the unwholesome mind state with its opposite wholesome mind state. So, um, for instance, if we were Feeling anger or ill will, we could uh, replace that by turning the mind towards uh, loving kindness. Um, if we were experiencing greed, um, we could turn the mind towards uh, generosity. Um, if we were experiencing sleepiness, we could um, turn the mind towards um, imagining, envisioning light, which would Uh, be the opposite of that kind of dullness and sleepiness. So a second thing that he instructed us that we could do in terms of abandoning um, unwholesome mind states is that we could um, reflect on their unwholesomeness. And in doing that, we could see that um, acting on whatever that um, unwholesome state was would bring um, consequences that were um, not desired. And so that could help the mind to make a decision, a choice not to um, act and to abandon um, the unwholesome um, state of mind. He also said we could just redirect our attention to something else, uh, something more wholesome. Um, we could um, we could also turn our our um, awareness very much towards the unpleasant state that was arising, and we could investigate it. And usually, through that investigation, the thought. Would um, would fall away uh, when we, our awareness was really focused on it, um, and the last thing he said is that if all of these these other four um, strategies do not work, then we could suppress it. But that was always, that was the last resort, was to um, to just say no. No, no, no. Um, So, um, but then um, there's also, so that's the unwholesome mind states, but he also talked about how we could relate and cultivate the wholesome mind states. So, um, the first thing is to, uh, instruction was to arouse um, wholesome mind states that had not yet arisen. So, in order to do that, we could um, focus on a um, wholesome um, activity, um, maybe one of the seven factors of enlightenment, or um, we could um, focus on the um, the wholesome states of the of the Brahma Viharas or the the Divine Abodes, the instructions on um, how to um, encourage and cultivate wholesome mind states. And then once the wholesome mind states have arisen, then we would make an effort to continue to um, for those uh, states to continue, So one of the practices that um, the Buddha introduced in in terms of cultivating these wholesome mind states are called the Brahmavaharas, or the divine abodes. And there are four uh, categories of of those um, wholesome mind states that we can practice and develop. Um, And they're really quite a lovely um, complement, the four of them. Practicing each of them can really bring a, a wholesome balance to the mind. So the the first and so the first um, one is called Metta or loving kindness, and this is a practice of um, developing friendliness or um, developing uh, a connection with our own goodness, our own good qualities. Or with the quality the good qualities of um, of others, and so with this, we are um, we practice sending our good wishes to ourselves or to um, other beings, and we we do it progressively. Um, in the traditional um, teachings, we start with ourselves. Which was supposed to be the easiest um, to send our kindness to, although um, many teachers in the West uh, say that um, from hearing listening to their students over the years that that is not always the case. So sometimes we need to start. We just start with whoever is easiest, and um, because there is um, there is suffering. We can work with that by uh, practicing compassion. So, with compassion, we turn the um, this kindness, this friendliness, we turn that towards um, the unpleasant, the stressful, to uh, to suffering, either our own or um, to the suffering of others. Um, but then. Human life is not just experiencing suffering, we also experience joy. And so there's a practice called mudita, which is uh, appreciative joy. And in that practice, we um, cultivate awareness of the um, good fortune of others or the good fortune of ourselves, success, um, happiness. We focus on that and we send our good wishes uh, towards ourselves or towards others for that to continue and for that to increase. And then the the fourth of the Brahmachaharas is Upeka, or equanimity. And with that practice, it's um, a practice where we um, develop a balance of mind in relationship to these wholesome states because um, sometimes when we're practicing uh, the loving kindness or the compassion or the appreciative joy, we can um, get a little too attached to those um, wanting either to, uh, for something to be different, trying to fix something, or perhaps with compassion we take too much responsibility um, for other people's suffering, well, again, kind of wanting to control it. And um, so... With equanimity, we understand that there's um, only so much we can do in terms of um, relieving the, the suffering of others. So we um, we bring this this balance of mind. One of the phrases that is um, used with equanimity is one. Uh, that Mark uses very frequently. Um, this is how it is right now. And can this be okay? So, um, those are the, um, the package of uh, wholesome mind states. So, I want to talk um, tonight a bit about um one of these mind states, compassion. But I especially want to focus on self-compassion. And one of the things that is a very common place for the um, human mind to go is into um, self-judgment and self-criticism. And so... Practicing self-compassion is a way that we can um, we can counter that habit of the mind, that habit of um, of judging ourselves harshly, criticizing ourselves, and we can instead um, turn towards um, our suffering with kindness and with caring. So, one of the things that um, has been discovered in um, by the study of uh, neuroscientists is that um, there is this um, part of our brain that they call the reptilian brain, uh, developed early on in uh, the evolutionary cycle, and with that, um, the way that that brain reacts is that when there is some form of um, of threat, or the brain is the organism is feeling attacked, that um, the response is to um, to um, for certain hormones, uh, certain chemicals to. To be um, excreted, and those particularly when this threat comes to us, those um, substances are adrenaline and cortisol. And what this prepares the the organism to do is either to um, to decide whether they're going to fight off the attack or if they're going to run away. And so this is um, over. Much of evolution—that was the way that um, organisms survived—was they either fought or they ran away, um, depending on how they assessed the situation. But what happens um, now in our um, with our modern um, life is that when there is a a threat that we, we perceive a threat has arisen. Um, these um, this these chemicals are still released, but um, we it's no longer generally appropriate to either run away or to fight and so um, what happens is that um, we have kind of developed this habit of um, we um, kind of attack ourselves, so we so when those threats arise, we tend to um, to turn to self-criticism and self-judgment, and so we kind of become both the um, attacked and the attacker. And so, with that, there's, you know, these um, these substances can just um, continue to to circulate um, within us, and we don't um, you know, we're not we can become very agitated and anxious as a result of that. So, but there's some good news, um, and that is that there's another part of the brain that developed later in terms of evolution, and um, that part of the brain is the mammalian brain. And um, so because uh, mammals um, are very dependent on their... um, Mother or their parents or their caregivers when they're born, especially for human beings, for a long time, we're very dependent. And so, um, what their what uh, nature provides us uh, generally is a um, this uh, warmth of the having the warmth and the gentle touch of the of the mother or the parent, the caregiver, um, the. Um, the Gentle kind vocalizations that um, help to release um, calming and um, nurturing substances that make us feel safe, and those are opiates and oxytocin. So, um, when we um, when we get this kind of nurturing. Then we feel we feel very safe, and when we feel that safety, then we can act in um, in, in the best way for our, our best interest and for the best interest of others. So, um, part of this uh, practice of self-compassion is that we can nurture ourselves in this way, and so that um, when we are aware of um, self-judgment and self-criticism that is arising. Then we can um, turn towards that, and we can turn towards it with kindness and with care. And when we do that, we um, the, the brain is soothed and and feels safe. And when that's the case, then um, we can make the best judgments and the best choices um, in terms of action. So this is a, a practice that, um, that we can do at any time, any time that um, we feel... Um, or we feel suffering, a lot of times we sort of develop the habit of we don't, um, we kind of even tend to ignore unless the, the stress is really, um, really gets our attention. We tend to um, to ignore it oftentimes. Um, we take it as not, um, too, uh, not so important or significant. But if we practice with these small stresses, it Acknowledging them and having this attitude of care towards them, then when um, we the, the mind is just much more likely when there is something that's more stressful that arises that that's the direction that it will take rather than um, this direction of um, of self-judgment and anxiety and um, self-criticism. and agitation. So this repetition is really important to, to do. This is a practice that we, um, if we're attracted to this, if it sounds like it's something that would be beneficial for us to do, then um, it's good to, to cultivate it frequently. did a six-week retreat last fall, and um, at the start of, near the beginning of the retreat, one of the teachers um, said that some people like to find it helpful to do loving-kindness practice at the beginning of each set, and um, so that, that, that sparked my interest um, when she shared that that felt like that was something that was um, would be beneficial for me to do, and so I did that um, during that retreat, and um, it was very interesting. Um, the, the as a, as a result of that kindness, it also um, tapped into a lot of um, of grief that had not been processed, which was um, really helpful for that to to come up and and to be uh, healed. But as a result of this, I um, and one of the things that was, was talked about was this idea of um, directing the kindness towards ourselves first. And one of the things that I, I think of um, in this regard is how when we're on plane, airplane and the um, flight attendants are giving the instructions, the safety instructions, they always tell us that if, they, if there's a loss of pressure in the cabin and we need to use an oxygen mask, that we always put it on ourselves first before we help someone else. Um, because if we... If we're not um, able to function, then we're not going to be able to help someone else very well. Um, also, I heard a story about... Um, Uh, on National Geographic there was a um, story about the polar bears and how they're the difficulty that they're having now um, with the global warming that's occurring and they showed a um, mother polar bear and her baby and she was looking for um, for food and by the the time that um she was able to find some food she was really been very seriously debilitated. but when she found the food it was um, she had to go down into the water um, and get the, this carcass but she um, went and ate her ate herself first and then she was she had enough strength so that she could come and bring some food to her baby so, I just um, find that to be um, kind of a helpful way of of looking at it, kind of giving permission for ourselves to to be kind and and caring towards ourselves. Um, And when we do that, then it's much more um, what what we'd be able to um, give much more deeply in terms of compassion and care to others when we've given that deeply to ourselves or opened deeply um, ourselves to that. So one of the um, practices that uh, developed, that came out of this retreat was um, to I was to, to start, when I do mental practice, to start with myself. So I um, came up with this image that I called the the meta table. And so, um, at the, the meta table um, is the, the supper table, the dinner table in my home. And around the dinner table is sitting my family. And so, um, I, the first thing that um, we do in, in meta practice is that we connect with the goodness of ourselves or others. So, um, I've um, first of all I um, direct it to myself and I look and see what um, what I'm feeling good what good qualities I can um, recognize in myself and maybe uh, well, sometimes it's um, being um, grateful for um, for the practice and for um the efforts of practicing mindfulness and and uh loving kindness and compassion. That's a way that I can um, connect with, with um my goodness. And so you know just thanking myself for that practice and then moving around the table and connecting with each member of my family um, and recognizing their good qualities um, and then um, going around and saying the matter phrases going around the table Saying a mantra phrase to each of us um, a number of times, and what I found um, helpful about that is that um, sometimes the the, sometimes the mind is kind of confused and disturbed and stressed, and having that um, that image that has been um, repeated over and over again. Makes it very easy for the mind to to go towards that. It, it's really ingrained deeply in the mind. So um, it, it's said that um, one of the the benefits of of doing um, the Brahma Viharas is that we develop concentration um, as well as a as a side benefit. And so um, you know this. Bringing in all of our, um, all of our senses, so, um, the, the visualizing, the seeing, um, the, um, what the, or we're sending our good wishes towards, and the, the speaking of the phrases, so that involves um, our hearing, and then the, the feelings that are, um, generated as a result of that. And sometimes I, I even do, I, I, you know, I can use my hand, um, to keep track of the metaphrases, so that's another, like you know, using uh, sensation to um, to uh, keep the mind directed um, towards the the meta practice. So I've been um, reading this book for several months called Self-Compassion by Kristen Neff. And she's a a psychologist, and she's also practiced um, Buddhist meditation for many, many years. And so she talk somewhat from a, a psychological point of view about um, self-compassion. And one of the chapters that I found um, quite interesting in, um, in this book is called um, Opting Out of Self, the Self-Esteem game. And so what she says is that um, over the, um, especially the, the last several years, um, decades that there has been, in in Western psychology, there has been this um, great um, movement towards um, the development of self-esteem to um, help people to develop their self-esteem. And not that there's anything wrong with that, of course, Um, one of the reasons that they were psychologists were so attracted to that is because um, oftentimes people who have um, high self-esteem tend to be um, happier and tend to be more productive, and people who have low self-esteem tend to be, um, tend more to have um, anxiety or depression, not as much productivity, but um, as they've Talk this to, to people over the years. Um, it's come to be seen that there are some problems with um, with this approach. Um, so, um, just to to go back, um, the the way that um, they're defining self esteem is a um, evaluation of our self worth. That's the, the general meaning that they're using. And so the way that we um, experience this, this self-worth, this self-esteem, um, the way that we acquire it and, and um, maintain it, is in a number of ways, but um, some of the ways that uh, she describes in the book are that um, we can... Um, we tend to value things that we're good at and to devalue things that we're not so good at. Um, So that's okay, but part of the problem with that is that then, um, for for one thing, um, if we're not, if we don't have a lot of wisdom, um, our what we value and what we devalue um, might not be so wholesome and beneficial. Um, So uh, we might be... um, Cutting ourselves off from a lot of experience that could be really beneficial for us. Um, another way that um, we acquire and maintain self-esteem is that we um, we take something that we do value and we um, work to become more competent at it. And um, again, if we don't have a lot of wisdom, we might choose something to become competent that at that's not so helpful or helpful. Um, but also if we fail at doing that um, with self esteem because um, our self worth is invested in this particular um, activity, we can um, we can be quite deflated and um, unhappy. Um, have difficulty dealing with that. We don't have um, a good way to deal with it. Um, if it doesn't um, work out, and then the third thing that she says about self-esteem is that we um, oftentimes we we tend to um, get the, the self-esteem from how other how we perceive that others perceive us, which is not too reliable, um, generally speaking, either. And it's kind of interesting. Um, usually, what, We do is we, um, we, uh, take our perceived, um, how, how strangers perceive us. We give that more weight than how people who know us and are close to us perceive us because we see that as more objective and more, um, so it's more truthful or honest. But, um, again, you know, it's kind of based on, on uh, perceptions that are kind of questionable. I've also found that um, this emphasis on self-esteem has um, led to um, an a increase in uh, narcissism um, among people. Um, she says that... Um, The emphasis on high self-esteem at all costs has led to a worrying trend towards increasing narcissism. Twang and colleagues examined the scores of more than 15,000 college students who took the narcissistic personality inventory between 1987 and 2006. During the 20-year period, scores went through the roof, with 65% of modern-day students scoring higher in narcissism than previous generations. Not coincidentally, students' average self-esteem levels rose by a greater margin over this time. The authors examined how the emphasis on rising self-esteem in America has led to a real cultural sickness. And this is a quote from their book. Understanding the narcissism epidemic is important because its long-term consequences are destructive to society. American culture's focus on self-admiration has caused a flight from reality to the land of grandiose fantasy. We have phony rich people with interest-only mortgages and piles of debts, phony beauty with plastic surgery and cosmetic procedures, phony athletes with performance-enhancing drugs, phony celebrities via TV, reality TV and YouTube, Phony genius students with great inflation, a phony national economy with 12 trillion, with 11 trillion dollars of government debt. All this fantasy might feel good, but unfortunately, reality always wins. The mortgage meltdown and the resulting financial crisis are just one demonstration of how inflated desires eventually crash to earth. So. now there is a um, more of a surge towards um, the encouraging the development of self-esteem to the encouragement of the development of self-compassion. And the, um, there's one really big advantage to, um, to developing self-compassion in terms of, um, of our relationship to others, because um, with with self-compassion, we, instead of trying to develop our self-worth, um, trying to um, enhance it, we um, intrinsically accept our value as human beings, that as human beings um, we are worthwhile. And um, so we... And we also um, acknowledge that we are imperfect, and that um, and, and that that's okay. That's just the reality of, of human life. And so, with self-esteem, it, it's kind of um, that the outlook is that when something doesn't work out that this is an abnormality, this is something that's a mistake. And so we can't really relate to um, you know to it just as a normal part of, of human life. But when we um, when we develop this self compassion then we can um, we see that it's not just us who is um have this imperfections but that all human beings we share that with all human beings so instead of um this separateness and this um, desire to be above average and to be better than um, others we are um we understand our connectedness to to everyone and we um So out of that, we, you know, we are able to be. Um, if there's something that needs our attention, if there's some suffering that comes up, we can um, we can relate to it um, in a in a much more wholehearted way. So, with self-compassion, we first of all we become more aware of when um, suffering is present, when suffering and stress is uh, present in our life. We have a greater awareness of that. So that's kind of the mindfulness aspect of it. And um, then we have this caring and this concern that we bring to that that we return towards. Um, our suffering and when we um, are able to uh, be kind and caring towards our own suffering then we're much more able to uh, be have a wise, uh wise caring and compassion for the suffering of others and um, you know just this um, remembering that we're all connected and um, so we uh, When something happens that um, is not to our liking, we can uh, just take that more easily in the flow of things. We we realize that that's just part of life, and that um, and that it's not that either we did something right or we did something wrong, we did something good or bad. Um, It's just um, that uh, it's just part of the flow of life. So I wanted to close um, by reading a a story about compassion. And so this is um, called The Cow That Cried. And it's a story by Ajahn Brahm. I arrived early to lead my meditation class in a low-security prison. A person who I had never seen before was waiting to speak to me. He was a giant of a man with bushy hair and beard and tattooed arms. The scars on his face told me he'd been in many a violent fight. He looked so fearsome that I wondered why he was coming to learn meditation. He wasn't the type. I was wrong, of course. He told me that something had happened a few days before that had spooked the hell out of him. As he started speaking, I picked up his thick Ulster accent. To give me some background, he told me that he had grown up in the violent streets of Belfast. His first stabbing was when he was seven years old. The school bully had demanded the money he had for lunch, and he said no. The older boy took out a long knife and asked for the money a second time. He thought the bully was bluffing. He said no again. The bully never asked a third time. He plunged the knife into the seven-year-old's arm, drew it out, and walked away. He told me that he ran in shock from the schoolyard with blood streaming down his arm to his father's house close by. His unemployed father took one look at the wound, led his son to the kitchen, but not to dress the wound. The father opened a drawer, took out a big kitchen knife, Gave it to his son and ordered him to go back to school and stab the boy back. That was how he'd been brought up. If he hadn't grown so big and strong, he wouldn't have been, he would have been long dead. The jail was a prison farm where short-term prisoners or long-term prisoners close to relief, to release could be prepared for life outside. Some learning a trade in the farm industry. Furthermore, the produce from the prison farm would supply all the prisons around Perth with inexpensive food, keeping down the costs. Australian farms grow cows, sheep, and pigs, and so did the prison farm. But unlike other farms, this one had its own slaughterhouse on site. Every prisoner had to have a job in the prison. I was informed by many of the inmates that the most sought-after jobs were in the slaughterhouse. These jobs were especially popular with violent offenders. And the most sought-after job of all, which you had to fight for, was the job of the slaughterer himself. The giant, fearsome Irishman was the slaughterer. He described the slaughterhouse to me. Strong, stainless steel railings wide at the opening, narrowed down to a single channel inside the building just wide enough for one animal to pass through at a time. Next to the narrow channel raised on a platform, he would stand with the electric gun. Cows, pigs, or sheep would be forced down the stainless steel funnel, using dogs and cattle prods. He said they would always scream, each in its own way, to try to escape. They could smell death, hear it, and feel it. When an animal was alongside the platform, he would be writhing and wriggling and moaning. Even though his gun could kill a large bull with a single high-voltage charge, the animal would never stand still long enough for him to aim properly. So it was one shot to stun and one shot to kill, animal after animal, day after day. The Irishman started to become excited as he moved to the occurrence only a few days before that he, that had unsettled him so much, he started to swear in what followed. He kept repeating, this is God's infinite truth. He was afraid I wouldn't believe him. That day they needed beef for the prisons, and they were slaughtering cows. He was well into the of base killing when a cow came up like he had never seen before. The cow was silent. There wasn't even a whimper. Its head was down as it walked purposely, voluntarily, slowly, into position next to the platform. It did not ride or wriggle or try to escape. Once in position, the cow lifted her head, and stared at the executioner, absolutely still. The Irishman hadn't seen anything even close to this before. His mind went numb. He couldn't lift his gun. He couldn't (coughs) take his eyes away from the eyes of the cow. The cow was looking right inside of him. He slipped into timeless space. He couldn't tell me how long it took, but as the cow held him in eye contact, he noticed something that shook him even more. Cows have very big eyes. He saw in the left eye of the cow above the lower eyelid water began to gather. The amount of water grew and grew, until it was too much for the eyelid to hold and began to tri- trickle slowly down the cheek, forming a glistening light of tears. Long closed doors were opening slowly in his heart. As he looked in disbelief, he saw the right eye of the cow above the lower lid, more water gathering, growing by moment, moment by moment, until it, too, was running down the cheek. And the man broke down. The cow was crying. He told me that he threw down his gun, swore to the full extent of his considerable capacity to the prison officers that they could do whatever they liked to him, but that cow ain't dying. He ended by telling me that he was now a vegetarian. The story was true. Other inmates confirmed it for me. The cow that cried taught one of the most violent of men what it means to care. So we have a Few minutes. If there's any questions or comments that people have, anything that sharing that you like, anything you'd like to share. I
2: guess I kind of have a comment or a question uh, about something we talked about earlier. Um, kind of talked about the unbalanced states and how how to deal with those when those arise. Um, and I've come across something that's kind of made me think of them a little bit different way. Um, that's especially when it comes to, like emotions, like I sometimes I have like this crazy anger, which as I like meditated more it's just become really amusing, but it's still like really real. I don't have do really strong reactions. Um and rather really, than like viewing the anger as like this sweet out, of over to whatever, just like, as kind of a sign really something to work with, you know, um, uh, just listening to what my emotions are saying, and you know, a lot of times I hear it, like, it's like, okay, pop, is going to be made or something, you know, with someone, you know, it's not necessarily like, okay, I just need to, uh, it's more like, okay, some action can be taken, and that usually involves stepping back from it, but good point. but sometimes I'm just do stuff. I live with seven dudes, um, so like that stuff happens you when know, look a lot of people, um, but sometimes acting out, know, um, and you know, letting them know I'm angry rather than being like, no, oh, I shouldn't be angry. Like, I shouldn't be this absurdly, like, angry or really innate thing. I shouldn't be this and do it. But just letting them know that belief match my energy for one second, I'm to match yours. Sure i am not I feel like a schmuck, I'm not articulating this very well because I'm kinda of nervous as we're talking about oh. Yeah, just trying to view it in a different way where if I'm angry, if I'm this is bad, it's what what is that telling me? I'm just trying to pay attention to what needs to with it and drop the narratives of this person at this not this. they did this this they have a history of this through this type of person. Oh this person always does this.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Nora. I think you articulated it extremely well. And yeah, um, that sounds very wholesome, the way we'll to um, That you're approaching it, because it, it is, in you know, all of these things, like, the, um, the only time that we, well, so, these things are are skillful means, and so we just we can we choose in each situation what is appropriate in that situation. So, in the situation that you described, you are turning towards it, and you're opening up to it. You're experiencing it. You're investigating it, and then you're um, it sounds like you're choosing to act on it with wisdom. And so, that's good. and thank you, because I think that it can be a real point of confusion. Like, when do we when do we turn towards and open up? If we can, that's an excellent way to to do it. If it's too overwhelming and too much, in it, then probably it has to too much of a on us, then probably one of the other ways is, is a skillful way to work with them. Thank you. Other comments or questions? We have a
0: few more minutes. Yeah. Um, what you talked about about self-compassion is something that I've really been working on lately, kind of talking to myself more compassionately, and um, when yoga teacher sent me an email. Um, she teaches Tantra yoga, and in Tantra, it's about um, harnessing your energy. And um, one of the, the things that they really work on is harnessing um, like craving or desire, and how how do you take that energy and that's kind of an unwholesome state because you're not happy with what things are, you're you know not um, content, and. So as opposed to, you know, say you're you're craving entertainment or you're craving food or um, company, you just you take away the object of that and you just kind of sit with that feeling. And it's similar to the sense of, of compassion, kind of just holding on to it and not really um, doing anything about it, but being aware and then, you know, you can... The more open you are about it, the easier it is to to kind of take the edge off of the the unwholesomeness, and then suddenly you have you just have like you know you have a positive feeling because craving can be negative, but it can also be like there's a flip side to that, which is just kind of positivity. It just really resonated when you talked about this. So.
1: Yeah, thank you for sharing. So, I mean, it's, it really is in in um, our response to what's coming up where the, um, the wholesomeness or unwholesomeness comes in. And um, it... Those... Um, those things are just energy and they're not positive or negative. I mean, it's it's what, what the spin that we put on them that, um, that makes them so and how we act. Um, thank you.
0: This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website